0: quick disclaimer for this episode the content has mature elements that you won't want kids hearing so right now is the time to go ahead and pause and grab your earbuds when
1: when you flush your baby down the toilet you're left with a lot of questions
2: How do you forgive when the wound is still open? How do you leave a legacy of redemption instead of dysfunction? How do you trust God when your deepest fears are realized? Join me, Sarah May, along with some wise mentors along the way as we explore these and other messy heart topics and the strategies we can use to seek healing in the pain and restoration in the ruins. Welcome to the Complicated Heart
0: Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from my dear friend, Amy Smoker, who some of you may recognize as the woman who co-hosts A Night to Breathe with Me, the event for moms who need a night out. Now, let me just clear something up real quick. If you notice, you'll hear I have stuffy nose voice. Yes, I have a wretched cold situation that has been going on for days, but I didn't want to put this podcast off any longer. So that's the deal with my voice. Back to Amy. The reason I wanted you all to hear from her is because several of you mentioned you wanted me to start the podcast talking about grief and loss, and Amy is someone who has gone through great loss, several losses in fact, and has come through with such gentle wisdom and grace that inspires me in the highest of ways, and I know she's going to inspire you too. Today, you will hear Amy tell her story, the highlight reel, if you will, of her losses, and what she has learned about grief and lament through loss and pain. So Amy, welcome. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. I want to just dive right in. So will you tell us your story and you can just start where you feel like it really begins. Okay.
1: When I was a senior in high school, we got a new youth pastor who I ended up marrying, which sounds really scandalous.
3: But it's not scandalous. It's totally okay. She was out of the youth group, right?
1: (laughs) So after I graduated, um, we had the blessing of our pastors and he pursued uh, a relationship with me, which surprised me in the best of ways. But yes, it was, he technically was my youth pastor, which is really funny. And our kids laugh at that. But um, again, just a great relationship with him. We married two years later and we're still in the youth ministry. We got pregnant within the first year. Everyone was all excited. It wasn't in my plan like most things in life uh, that are big like that. It kind of jolts your plans a little bit, but that was okay. We had a mission trip planned that summer. And so we had our okay from the doctor. We had our 12-week checkup and then flew to Scotland. And while we were in Scotland, we had a miscarriage, which I guess after the 12-week mark, it would not be a miscarriage. I think they categorize that differently, but I was Went to the hospital, and there was no heartbeat. And had I been in the U.S., they probably would have scheduled, you know, your DNC to take care of it. But they sent me home to deliver the baby. They said, you'll deliver on your own. And so um, this was the first real experience of grief and heartache and loss. Up until then, I hadn't really known the Lord like I knew him in that time. They sent me home, but I wasn't home. I was in Scotland in this really big, cold castle. And my husband, Nate, was leading this team of 30 people doing work things. And so I was alone in the bed and actually delivered, had the pain. My water broke. My mom was on the other side of the world in um, on on a vacation, actually. So she was in the Virgin Islands and couldn't get in touch with her. So all alone. And I've heard it said, and I would say that it is true, that a key to knowing Jesus is needing Jesus. And I needed him in that time. And I came to know him like I had never known him before, mm. crying out to him, confused why are we losing this baby? You know, all of the questions, but I did pass the baby, we came home, and I think for that was the beginning of seeking the Lord with all of my heart and not shying away from the ugly parts um, that you want to keep hidden because they don't look polished and presentable for a Sunday church service. Amy,
3: after you delivered the baby. What did you do in that moment? What did you do with this baby?
1: When when you flush your baby down the toilet, you're left with a lot of questions. When it did come out, I didn't know what else to do. I was there alone in this bathroom. And like I said, my husband was busy with the church obligations and the church team. So in that moment, when the baby did come out, I didn't know what to do. And I didn't call for help or go get my husband. I just flushed the baby down the toilet. And of course, sat there and cried in that state of confusion and grief. But in the season following that experience, I was carrying that loss. And it was always at the forefront of my mind, whether I was at You know, a church service or a birthday party for a friend or whatever, I was always carrying just that quiet brokenness. A lot of us have that, that we carry with us, and we're in a room full of people, but we're not really there. We're somewhere else in our mind and in our heart. That's when I began to go to him. And in hindsight, I should have allowed people more in, like my husband said, but I didn't know that at the time. I just went to the Lord with the questions I had. Never quite shaking a fist, but at him personally, right at the Lord, directly at the Lord, but shaking my fists in a clenched way of no and why and that sort of thing and finding him there in that broken, painful place. We, within a few months, conceived our first son, Jacob. And that was very redemptive for us, and things were looking great. We were living in our first home, and Nate was still in the ministry, and uh, we were adjusting to being parents, <laughs> and all of that comes with that, with the feedings and the lack of sleep. And uh, but in within two months, our world was flipped upside down. With um, Jacob was born in July of two thousand five. And in August of 2005, um, Hurricane Katrina came through our town of Past Christian, Mississippi, which is at the very bottom, the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. It was Sunday morning. I'll never forget. I was, Nate's in the ministry. So, of course, he went on ahead of me to the service. And I was at home getting the baby ready and getting myself ready. And he sent me a text and he said, don't worry about coming to church. Um, You know, it's canceled. You need to start packing up. For the for evacuation, and I thought, well, okay, because I grew up doing that my whole life, so it wasn't a big deal at the time. We'll just pack up and head to my aunt's house, who lived ten minutes inland, and so that's where we went. And I took my wedding dress and our computer, a pack of diapers, and our wedding photos and and our important papers, and that was pretty much it. We went to my aunt's house and rode out the storm like we did every other storm before that. Honestly, we didn't know the devastation like y'all did. People from the outside would have looked in and knew more than we did at the time until a few days later we were able to get out and go down and see that uh, our house was completely destroyed Mm -hmm. and we had an eight-week-old baby with no crib and no place to lay our head. I'll never forget, we would go to our mailbox, which they set up essentially P.O. boxes in a in a soccer field for the entire community, and that's where we all went to get our mail because nobody had mailboxes. And I went to the soccer field to get my mail, and I sat in my car and kind of flipped through things, and there was this big packet from the insurance company. And when I opened it, it was just a big, fat denial, and here's all the reasons why. And that was a moment for me, too, of loss because I did not know how in the world, here we are still paying a mortgage on a house that is not there. And what are we going to do? How are we ever going to come up out of this debt? But God, these teams from Pennsylvania started saying, well, we could bring down workers. We could bring down supplies. Let's build you a house. And they poured a new foundation and they started bringing teams. And every week they brought a new team of different skill sets for what was needed that week. And in 12 weeks, we had a house built and it was built from Pennsylvania. That's what we say. This is the house that Pennsylvania built. And here's the fun part. The team that came down was this team of block masons and brick masons and just the sweetest, kindest, most sincere group of guys. And of all the hundreds of hundreds of people that we met, there's certain few that I remember, and this was a team of guys and godly men that I will never forget. They were just so tender-hearted and caring and We kept in touch through the years, sending Christmas cards and um if ever we came up to Pennsylvania, we might run into them and talk for a while and just catch up. They were just so kind and Years later, I became friends with Sarah, and she's talking about her family. And the different people in her family. And lo and behold, that precious, sweet group of guys are her brothers in law or your brother-in-law and your Sister sister's. In-law. Yes. So of course, it was Sarah May's family that was so kind and giving.
3: I love that. And the reason this story is so fun to me is because I always say I'm actually related to Amy. I'm not, but I'm going to just say I am. I had a picture of Amy on my blog one time from a conference. And my sister-in-law calls me and she goes, how do you know her? And I was like, she's my friend. And she's like, we went down and helped. Was Sarah there too? No, but I met her okay, on but, a trip up here. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so what a small world. And it turns out that my sister-in-law Sarah's husband, Ben, is cousin – his dad is cousins with Amy's husband's dad. <laughs> Can you follow me? <laughs> Can that? you follow that? <laughs> So I'm just going to say we're
1: related. We're related. Mm -hmm. And so all to say, yes, the bright spot of that hard part in our life was God's provision and his faithfulness through these people who gave of their time. And just to see the body of Christ come together on a unified vision and heart to restore and rebuild is, is just an illustration of the Father's heart for us. Okay. So you have just dealt with Katrina,
3: but now you're in a new house. You have a house of your own. Mm -hmm. What next?
1: So soon after we became pregnant with our second, Abigail, and she was born in the spring. It was a sweet time. We're in a new house. Nate's getting back into the youth ministry, kind of phasing out of crisis relief mode. Things seem settled again. And, um, In April, uh, my mom was over helping me with Abby, who was three weeks old. I had a 20-month-old and, you know, just doing laundry and dishes and putting littles down for naps, and she leaves and says, I'll see you in the morning, and she went home, and that evening, my brother called in a panic. I will never forget, I was rocking Abby to sleep. In the nursery, and my husband, who was a very steady person, bolted through the door and said that he said your brother found your mom on the floor, and the ambulance is on its way. And so we had house guests at the time, so I had to let them know. And we loaded all the babies in the car. And Josh, my brother, said you need to come to the house. They said to come to the house, which. You know how it is in in a crisis moment you don't like looking back you can see things more clearly but in the moment I just thought okay so we went to the house the yard is full of emergency lights and vehicles and about when I got up to the back door they were wheeling her out slowly on the gurney and I have this picture in my mind of the police officer who took his hat off and press it to his head, his chest, and said he was sorry, and I, I didn't know what was going on. I thought, maybe we're still going to the hospital for them to help her, um, but it wasn't until we were at the hospital that the doctor came in the conference room that they had, they put us all in, and he started the whole speech that they do. Um, we did everything we could. We're so sorry. The responders came in good time, and you know, it's a fog of what he said, but it wasn't until that moment that I knew she was gone. And I was holding my three-week-old baby who was crying, and my mom was what held our family together because um, I love my father, but um, she's what made our life good and normal, and here she was gone. And I, again, my world felt like it was flipped upside down. Um, The days and months following that were full of grief. And at the time, I was 24, so young, young married, a little infant baby, and a toddler who just needed me. And I remember just days and days just plodding to the kitchen in the morning and just crying out in in my heart, not necessarily verbally, but just, God, you have got to be here with me. Um, Because there were so many needs with babies. And again, I learned to know him in those times like I would never have known. And I actually will look back on that time now. And there's such a sweetness of his presence that I remember so, so clearly and vividly that there's almost a sense of missing that season just because of how near he was. It's just so true in the Psalms that he is near to the brokenhearted. And we came through that, and I had Elizabeth, my third. Uh, we had moved away. We were now four hours away from home in Alabama, and helping to start a church and have our feet back up on the ground and I always say that with each baby that came came a I was in a season of crisis and the Lord would just carry me through those infancy years with the with the babies. And when Elizabeth was born, my two-year-old, Abby, um, had to be hospitalized. I remember being in the hospital and the doctor coming in and saying that I waited too long to bring her in. And she was severely dehydrated. And, you know, they don't give you much hope. And he said, we're going to do what we can, but you waited too long and to sit with that in a hospital room where your little 2 year old is on an IV and not really responding and nursing an mm-hmm. infant i i began to understand that this place of nursing an infant in a crisis was my place with god and he taught me that just like we are told in the scriptures that as a mother comforts her child so i comfort you and I can say that that was so true. I would be comforting my infant and it was the Lord who was carrying me and coddling me and comforting me in those times. And it was a vivid picture for me to look down and see this baby and also be reminded of this is how the Lord is carrying me. Mm -hmm. And Abby was okay. It took her 48 hours to respond to the fluids and um, they discharged us from the hospital, wiping sweat off their brows like They said to us, you know, we're thankful it turned out like this, but don't let that happen again, basically, is how they told me when I left. Fast forward a a year or so, and we had number four, another girl. And when she was born, I was sort of holding my breath (laughs) because when Jacob was eight weeks, we lost our home. When Abby was three weeks, my mom died. And when Elizabeth was six weeks, Abby was on an IV. And I just thought, what next? Mm. And so Gracie was born. And two weeks later, I got a phone call from the doctor's office who had reviewed her, you know, how they prick their heel Mm. to do those testings and something flagged for a metabolic disease that would be life threatening. And so that was a fog of, you can't nurse, you have to stop nursing, give her the bottle, Every feeding is life-threatening because if she has what she's showing that she has in this blood work, her lactose levels will build up to be toxic because her body cannot break down. It's not like lactose intolerant, like my belly hurts, but missing an enzyme. And so um, here I had a screaming baby who wanted to nurse and would not take a bottle, but I knew if I fed her, I could potentially be poisoning her. And again, just crying out to the Lord in those moments of so much unknown and not knowing if my baby was well or not. And they sent us immediately to specialists in Birmingham and lots more blood work and testings. And thank the Lord she does not have the classic form of that disease. She does have a variant of it, but she can live a normal life. But in that two weeks of testings and the unknowns, again, just grief and going to the Lord. Was Gracie a twin? She was. In our first ultrasound, because I had had a couple other miscarriages after that first one, they would give me an early ultrasound just because of the high risk there. And in in about her eight or nine week ultrasound, they let us know that it was twins. But they did say that the second one doesn't look as healthy as the the first one. And so, yeah, um, she was a twin and we lost that other one. And she is such a tender soul. And we often attribute that to just that unknown um, sacred place of the womb that she lost something in there that, I don't know, is sort of mysterious to think about. But, yes, that was another hard thing is Gracie was a twin during the time that she was a baby, started making plans to move to Pennsylvania. So just moving in itself is hard. (laughs) Moving across the country to a brand new place. For my husband, he moved home. And so we did have, um, it was home to him. And so we did have family and established friendships already. So that made it easier. And I was pregnant again with our fifth Jude. And When I had Jude, I was still brand new to this area. Now at that time, I had five young children, lots of demands, so, so weary and tired and lonely and another season of grief. And although it wasn't a loss, it wasn't death or devastation like a a hurricane, it was still a grief that of letting go of the life you had of accepting the new, entering into an unknown season and embracing the things that come your way um, that you feel the Lord is bringing you into. And so that was a journey of grief in itself. And so the Lord has brought us through different types of loss and heartache and hard times. If I could sum it all up, those are the highlighted parts of art of my journey where I learned to intimately know the Lord through those times. Amy, the things you've gone through, I mean, one of those things
3: is enough for a lifetime. I mean, just one of those things. And you went through several and I'm wanting to know what have you learned about grief and lament through all of this?
1: I have learned that In grief of any kind, like I said, it could be an actual loss with a death or it could be a move, a letting go of, you know, grief is letting go of something you once had that you can no longer have and walking that out. And so any kind of grief, I have learned that lamenting is a gift and it is something the Lord allows us to do. And not only that, he invites us to lament and it is crucial to healing and growth and coming through something it's biblical i I guess i don't know why we're not taught more on lamenting and how it is it brings you through this path of healing and i think maybe because it, it doesn't look pretty and it some people think that it's kind of too close to a complaint and so they steer away from it because it's not presentable, you know, to a pretty Sunday morning church service. It it can be ugly, but I have learned that for me it was crucial in coming through something. We're not only taught to lament in the scriptures, we're invited to do it because the Lord knows that it is a pathway to his heart, that connection to keep communing with him as we struggle through the thing that we're in. I would say the difference between a complaint and a lament are a couple things. For one, lamenting is done usually alone before the Lord. It is not done with a friend or even your husband, really. It's something so personal and so deep that you bring it to the Lord, and it's in the context of worship. Complaining is usually with other people, and in that unrestrained, like, dialogue of venting, and that is not a lament. A lament can be a vent, but it is before the Lord in worship. Complaining is usually done with the mindset of a clenched fist and holding on to our rights, you know, like we're complaining about this because we want it a certain way. Whereas a lament is that open hand, that vulnerable bearing of your heart before the Lord. A complaint will point fingers usually. And a true lament, and we can see it in the scriptures, is humble. You're humble before the Lord because you are before the Almighty who holds the world in his hand. And who am I? to dictate what I think it should look like. And so there's a humility there that's not usually present in a complaint. And so through this, I've, I've learned those differences. And so, yes, it is okay to lament. It's good to lament. And it is a way through like that children's book going on a bear hunt. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't go under, it, you can't go over it. You've got to go through it. And we are given a model of this in the book of Lamentations Just really quickly, Jeremiah is grieving the destruction of the temple, and there's five chapters of lament in this book, and this book is a gift to us because it it shows us the way. It shows us how to do this biblically, and you have the first two chapters. He is letting it out. He is bearing his heart before the Lord, and it is ugly, and it is raw. I mean, he says things like, you have made my teeth grind on gravel. He says, I have forgotten what happiness is. He is bearing it all, not holding it back. He's going there. But in the middle of this book, in the very center of this language of woe and cries, we have this beloved passage that many of us have hanging in our homes or written on a bookmark. And let us remember where it comes from. So he lays out his heart and then he says, but this I call to mind. So he has all of this devastation, all of this destruction, and he's not withholding anything when he cries out to the Lord. And he says, but this I call to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And he goes on a few more verses from there. And we know that's familiar to us because a lot of us hang on to that. But it's actually in the very center of a book of lamenting. And he even after that, he even goes back into his lament of crying out to the Lord and laying it out, his disappointment, his struggle, regret, you know, all of those ugly parts of, of a heart. He's laying them out. But in the middle, he calls to mind the truths that he can stand on. And I've learned to do that um in the hard times when I don't really have words. I don't really have the right thing to say, and I don't really sometimes I don't even know what to believe, you know, when you're the when you're rocked to the core a lot like I said when I flushed that baby down the toilet, I had a lot of questions. And that's okay. I think as long as you bring it to the to the father. And lay those questions before him like Jeremiah did in the book of Lamentations. Um, But I've never been so low that I didn't have one thing that I could hang my hat on. And it changed from situation to situation. It might be the love of God in one season where I don't know about his goodness. I don't know what I think about sovereignty. I don't know what I think about, you know, the other things. But the love of God, I know that he loves me. So I'll be doing the dishes. And that wave comes over me and I just mutter under my breath, he loves me. I'm changing a diaper and I feel that pit in my stomach and I utter, he loves me. And I go through my day and I hang on to that one thing. It's like Jeremiah. But this I call to mind. And so that's what I've learned, Sarah, in the lamenting is that it is biblical. It is absolutely crucial because our emotions are the voice of our heart, really. And so we can go years and years dismissing the ugly emotions, anger, you know, um, even depression, anxiety, all of those things, and push them to the side because they don't look godly. But really they're just a cry of our heart to be tended to. And that's what I've learned. The lament helps to bring that up, to look at it, to invite it in for a moment, not to camp out there, But to sit with it long enough to learn and encounter God and what God says in that part of my life, in that part of my heart, you know, love, love the Lord, your God with all your heart. That means all of it. (laughs) And to, to acknowledge all of it and take it all to him and, and then progress along in our pilgrimage with that. That is so good. What you're saying
3: ultimately is, is that if we want healing, it comes through. Lament.
1: Yes. Part, you know, in part, the Lord can use our, take us in our healing using other things in our lives. But for me, yes, the lament, the crying out to Him in this, whatever it may be, the different hard things that we all walk through. I've had people say, well, I haven't, you know, for example, I have a friend who has struggles with her mother. And she'll be talking to me about that, and then she'll realize, and she'll say things like, "Oh, I'm sorry, but you don't even have your mother and Here I am complaining and I say to her, "No, like that is your story, and yes, you have a mother, and I don't, and we all have differences in our stories, but we are all walking a road of pain, whatever that may look like, and yes, to bring that and how it really makes you feel to the Lord, because I think. Grief in whatever way it may, for whatever reasons it may come to you, it can come in waves. And if you don't go with that, and when it hits you, go there. There were times I left a cart of groceries in the grocery store and had to go back out to my car. Like, I didn't do that every time. But there are times that when it comes over you just to go there with it, kind of like a labor pain, you know, you can't really... It gets worse if you try to resist it. (laughs) So to go through that wave in the Lord's presence, and that can be in the grocery store, over your kitchen sink, in your car, but to not deny yourself that healing um, because he knows the truth of who we are. And when we deny the truth of how we really feel, we do ourselves a disservice. We really don't grow at all. And, yes, I will say this, that there is this – and all throughout Scripture, there seems to be these dichotomies of, well, it says to be still, and then it says to run with perseverance. And you know, there's time, like Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes tells us, there's a time for everything. So I know there's a time to buck up and put our big girl panties on and march on.
3: Not say the word panties. Okay.
1: I, hate I that word. okay. Yeah. You do hate <laughs> that word. There, there is a time to stand up and pull your big girl pants on and. March, there is a time for that. And I'm not saying um, to woe and lament over everything in life, but there is a time for it. And not to deny yourself the depths of knowing God in those times by just pushing it aside. There is growth in lamenting and taking it before him, crying out to him. David and the other psalmists, they, they go there. They cry out. And in one psalm, you'll see that progression of crying out and desperation. And essentially, it's, but this I call to mind. Mm-hmm. And they'll they'll say it's like that one truth they're hanging on to. And like I said, for me, that fluctuates. Sometimes I struggle, does God love me? Honestly, but I'll know that he's good. And so it's mm-hmm. not like it's always the same thing. There, like I said, there's ne- I've never been low enough that I didn't have something that I knew to be true mm-hmm. of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And the Lord speaks to us in the dark. We are, anybody who's walked through a hard time, most people will, will attest to this. But we are told for assurance of that in Matthew 10 that Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he tells them, what I whisper to you in the dark, I want you. To speak in the light of day. And so, what he's saying is, what I say to you in secret, privately, take it and share with others in the light of day. And so, when we go through those hard times in the dark, in the middle of the night, tossing and turning, rocking a baby, pacing our porch, whatever it is in the middle of the night, God is speaking to us in the dark. He's whispering those. And so, May we share those whispers and speak it in the light of day. From there, like I said, you build on that. That is your foundation. You're, you're dropping the kids off at school. You're waiting for the bus. You're in the grocery line. And you feel those, those feelings. You have those thoughts. And you say, but this I call to mind. Mm-hmm. And you say that one thing. Okay, so
3: I've got a question for you. I'm thinking about the people listening right now who are thinking, Amy, how can you say that God is good after everything that he let happen to you? Why do you praise him?
1: Why do you even believe he's good? Because I have known him in the dead of night, and no one can take that from me. No theological debate, no argument can take that from me. I think when we experience the Lord through hard times, we come to know him on a level that we can't get by reading a book or listening to a sermon or going to a conference. All of that is good head knowledge, and it's good um, tools for our tool belt, if you will. But when you are walking through it in life, And you take that to the Lord, trusting that he is faithful, trusting that he holds the world together. He holds all things together. And that's a faith. That's part of that is faith. And it can be a mustard seed. I love that we're told also that he is the author of our faith, but he's also the perfecter. Mm -hmm. He's the one that does that work in us with that tiny little bit of faith. And so trusting his faithfulness, trusting that he is good, Going to him with that pain, wrestling it out before him, he brings us to a place of depth that cannot be argued out of us. I went from knowing all of the head knowledge, which is not bad. I'm not saying don't study and don't listen and and educate and learn, but I went from having and living out of a knowledge from my library, you know, to an experiential knowledge to where I was a living epistle, walking it out myself and knowing that it is like the anchor of our soul. You know, it is an anchor is something that is unseen. I grew up on the coastline, so anchors are a very vivid picture for me. And that's what we're told in the scripture, that our that hope and that security is the anchor of our soul. And an anchor is not seen and it is not heard. It is just there tethering you. And that is just the best way to describe the depth of love that you feel and the knowledge of God that comes from walking with him through darkness. It's that tethered security and steadying that he gives you that you can't really put it up on a debate table. You know, I'm not, my husband went to Bible school. I didn't, so I don't have that Biblical knowledge of, uh, you know, someone who went to seminary. But what I do know, no one can take. And that's the thing that carries me and steadies me. So that's why I can look at the Lord in gratitude for what he's done for me through all of that.
3: Amy, I just have one more question for you. And that is what do you want to say to the woman out there who has suffered? great devastation in her life. What encouragement or advice do you have for her?
1: To you who has a broken heart, I would say you put one foot in front of the other and you keep your eyes up. In Isaiah chapter six, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I did a little study and discovered that King Uzziah and the prophet Isaiah were dear, dear friends. And so when the King Uzziah died, that was devastating for the prophet Isaiah. And so when we read in the year that King Uzziah died, that was a hard year for Isaiah. That was a gut-wrenching loss for the prophet Isaiah. But in that year, He saw the Lord. And as we all traverse through these different varying levels of pain and loss and grief in our life, I would say to you, in the year, and you fill in the blank, in the year that my husband lost his job, in the year that my child was diagnosed, in the year, and you name it, my prayer for you would be like Isaiah. May you see the Lord. May you encounter him in that pain. And as you walk through it, not avoiding how you really feel deep inside, not and not camping out there, but as you push through one foot in front of the other, almost in this robotic, rhythmic thing that we do, as mamas and as women just pushing through, but you do that before the Lord, uttering through your day that one thing I would say to you. What is that thing you can hold on to? When he says, but this I call to mind. What is your this that you can call to mind? And it may be so basic as Jesus loves me, but that will carry you through. And so in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord. May you see God in this time, in this hard place, as you call to him and bring to mind the truth that you do know. When there's so much that you don't know, what is the one thing that you do know? Thank you, Amy, and thank you for being here. It was
0: a joy. Next week, I'm talking with my counselor from college, Melanie Harding, the one who helped me with all my mother issues. We'll talk more about grief and hear from her about how to walk through the grieving process and what practical strategies we can employ to help us in that process. In today's show notes, you will find a mini Bible study on Lament and King Uzziah, as well as links, quotes, and more information on Amy.
2: Thank you for listening to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Loved this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Reviews are how people know if they should listen or not. So please, if you like the show, take a minute and give it a review. Thank you so much. If you want to know more, check out sarahmay.com forward slash the complicated heart podcast. See you next time.